It is not a cultural Trojan horse, put it that way. You know, we're not just trying to figure out how to create some boutique object as a way to uh, increase our bottom line. I mean, we actually, this book project, we've actually made available on cassette for the first time, which in, in 20 years, which is a hilarious venture, just trying to get cassettes manufactured. But also the demand for the cassettes really, surprisingly, exists and we sold it on 8-track, which was even more of an odyssey, because there's like there are two people in the world making 8-tracks now. I feel I do feel uh, uh, I have to explain what this They Might Be Giants book project is just uh, in the simplest terms, because people listening to our conversation will be completely lost, and I don't expect people to do research before they listen to a podcast. So I am John Flansburg of They Might Be Giants. I'm the guy with the glasses, and our new musical project, which comes out in November, is called Book. It is a 12 by 12 hardbound, cloth-covered art book, essentially like a, a photo folio, except it includes lyrics as well that have been designed by a fellow named Paul Serre in the form of uh, concrete poetry. So each set of each song's lyrics has its own shape, and it, so it kind of has, if you took like art history and you studied like Dadaism, it has that kind of weird, um, like they're, they're, it's, it's just, it's hard to explain, but easy to understand. And, uh, it took Paul, he did it with an IBM selective typewriter from the 1970s all by hand. Uh, yes, jokes from the shining did come up during that process. Uh, but it's, uh, it's a big project. It's 144 pages long. We made a whole album that is part of the project, and that's included as a CD. The album comes out separately as well, but basically this mixed-media physical object in the real world it was, the, was the, uh, the main event. And I'm proud to say we've, uh, we've sold like 10,000 of them so far, which is shocking to me. What is with the fascination with the physical object, not only of the book, but of the cassette and the 8-track? Well, I think once we started making physical books, we realized we might as well just go all the way with the idea of just kind of doing more stuff in the physical world. I'll let you in on a secret. The guys in They Might Be Giants are old. And, um, you know, we have a different relationship to the album. You know, in the era of Spotify and streaming music in general, it's almost like there's I mean, I think I feel like six months ago there was like a memo from Spotify that was just like, uh, "P.S. The album is is you know obsolete. You can now stop making albums. Please just give us individual songs." And I sort of understand how that culturally that works. I DJ like a community radio show every week, and I'm very I'm very song oriented person in general. I think a lot of people are you know love the song as like the single unit. Like there's lots of people who who hate albums, who think albums are just like... But I guess the truth is, is like, we're, you know, we're kind of set in our ways in terms of our process and the way we make, we approach recording projects is by making albums. And I guess this expanding it and sort of just making this, doing this book project in a way was, was, a, was an effort to kind of justify all the energy we put into making a, a full album. So it's sort of like, it's sort of like a... a it's like strapping a little booster rocket on the on the back of uh, the musical project. One of the weirdest things about putting out albums, especially as you know, if you if you've been doing albums for a long time, it's like you might work for six months or a year on an album, and the week it comes out, like the week after it comes out, you're doing an interview, and people are like, "So, what's next?" And you're just like, 
no, I, I, I need you to pay attention to this thing that I, I poured so much effort into. And you feel like you're planting your flag in the sand with this one? Sort of. I mean, I, you know, it might be a lost cause. You know, it could easily be a lost cause. I, I'm not saying I, I'm. I have seen so many formats come and go in my life. I'm not going to pretend that the album is going to be a forever thing. And lots of people do really well in the in the single format. I think for a band like us. You know, there are different kinds of bands, and what's good from one band is different than another band. Like, you know, our when I look back on our first album, you know, there are a couple of breakout songs. I mean, there's a song on it called Don't Let's Start that for a lot of people is like their favorite They Might Be Giant song. But to me, what's uh, and, and it's one of my favorite songs to play, but, but, but one of the things, one of the nice side effects of that record is that half of it is really uh very far left of center of like pop popular music and it kind of defined the band in a singular way like it it didn't it was helpful to sort of show people you know all the different kind of uh, uh lopsided parts of the they might be giants musical universe that there could be i, I think it's just an, sort of it informed the future our future as a band like we didn't just become a singles band. It's really difficult to find success if, if you're not chasing those trends. You've been doing this for a long time now, and, and I think people sort of broadly know what you do musically. Early on, was there an impulse to chase the popular trends a little bit more in terms of actually breaking through? No. I mean, actually, it was sort of just the opposite. The real legacy of the band, like what we where we started and the kind of the thing that was a little bit of a shadow over us was that John, John, when we started the band, John was actually in another band that was, had moved to New York to get signed. So they were trying to kind of crack the code of all the, the gatekeepers at record companies and management companies and rock clubs and all the things that people do to kind of get over. So much of that seemed just... You know, I like you know, like any. They were a great band. You know, the band he was in was called the Mundanes, and they were like a very appealing band in 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 almost every way. They had really good songs, and they were a really rocking band. They had a great lead guitar player. They had great singers, and everything about them was like sort of top quality. But they weren't really getting where they needed to get to professionally. I think you know, <laughs> I think the thing that John and I sort of came to the band initially with was just like sort of a really bad attitude of like let's just give up let's just not try to please anybody but ourselves and just do the best most interesting stuff that we can and stuff that appeals to us and we might not get very far but at least it'll be interesting and and fun while we do it and that seemed like that seemed like a very low stakes kind of gambit you know we weren't really risking much because if it was interesting to do it you know while we're doing it we'd get something out of it no matter what. I think the whole thing about musicians are very, you know, are, are often very calculating. And I think one of the things that they often forget about in their calculations is like, what's actually going to feel okay, even if it fails. And uh, that was, we, we just sort of wanted to kind of build in our own kind of personal uh, parachutes. I think people like to think of music and art, and I guess just working in general as being a, a meritocracy in the sense that like the best stuff is ultimately going to rise to the top. But And obviously this is a very 
It's a very subjective comment, but I certainly that's not always the case with music. What do you sort of ascribe the early successes to? I mean, how do you think you were able to break through that barrier without making a more conscious effort to appeal to the masses? Well, a, a bunch of things broke our way, which were, I mean, we definitely had some lucky breaks. Run, working with Adam Bernstein, the guy who directed our early videos, was a huge uh, lucky break for us. But we had, we've had a lot of little bits of good luck, but... I don't even know, you know, we started in 82, really started gigging steadily in 83, and even by 1990, we were still considered an up-and-coming band. So, I mean, we were, we really, we really crawled our way out of New York at a pretty slow rate. It's like everything else in life. It feels, it feels like forever when you're actually going through it. Oh, I mean, it was forever. I mean, it, it, it didn't just feel, I mean, I, I you know, we, you know, b- before we, when we started the band, like I, you know, I couldn't. When we started the band, I was I was shocked when we got to play at CBGB's. Before we even made an album, I was tired of playing at CBGB. You know, like there was huge arcs of experience. I am grateful that we had so much stage time and and so much recording time before we started making albums because I think we could have made much more zeitgeisty records in the 80s that would seem super... I mean, all all recordings sound somewhat dated, but I think by the time we actually made our first album, we knew a little bit about how to avoid certain pitfalls. I don't know. I, I mean, on the... on the, I, the the idea of success is so, is so subjective, you know, and the idea of a meritocracy in music is also incredibly subjective. I mean, I feel like the era we're living in now is is almost they've almost dis they've almost disassembled the the idea of like mass appeal music which is interesting and and kind of great but uh it it's a different world i assume that that when you set out to do this professionally that that success was something you were thinking about at least just from the standpoint of is this actually a thing that we can do for a living is this a thing that we can survive on in the those early days and and during that time when you were banging your head against the wall to some degree what was your working definition of success uh you know that's that's a really that's a really good question but i just don't i i can't say i really have a clear i don't know if we really had a clear notion of it i mean we were doing shows we were doing shows on week i mean i remember doing shows on weekends seemed like a great vic- a great victory not playing the salad bar at 2 p.m. yeah i mean be- well cuz weekend shows are you know people are looking to have a good time weekday shows people are kind of just looking at you you know those are like work days i mean we were playing there was some you know we were coming out of new york city which is a terrible place to start a band i, I mean i have to say you know if people people want some cheap advice from a guy in a band like don't start your band in new york because it's incredibly expensive for everybody and there's not a lot of scenes that are independent of just like uh the music industry um but we were lucky like one one thing we were really lucky about is that the east village scene happened like while we were starting so we were already playing these clubs and then these clubs kind of caught fire like it's hard to even explain there was a there's a club called the pyramid club and it's it's one of those things where like if you were there, you'd know what it was like. It was crazy. It was a club that held 400 people. They flipped the room four times a night. You know, there were like basically 2,000 people coming in and out of this tiny space. And it was just, you know, packed like the subway. And uh, it was a total scene. Like there was, there were, you know, dancers on the bar. It was like, it was like, it had, it was 
this Dionysian, super decadent, super fun thing. And it was a scene. It was like, it was the place to be in New York. Everybody there knew they were in the place to be. And it wasn't like gross. It was super druggy, but it wasn't like gross and weird, like in a Studio 54 way. It wasn't like an extension of like money. In fact, it was kind of very anti-money. Um, it was a really, just a, a dirty place that was like a hell of a lot of fun. And, you know, now... Years afterwards, the Pyramid Club kept on going as kind of like a showcase place, sort of in the same way, very much in the same way that CBGB kept on going as a showcase place. Like it's, um, it would be hard to have played in CBGBs in its like last decade or two and think like, oh, this this is an amazingly wonderful experience. Like it's just all the bad parts seemed very present and all the interesting parts were long gone. But in its moment, the Pyramid Club and 8BC and Dorinka and all the other East Village places were just, it was just a blast, you know? Um, and sort of just circling back to what I was saying before about like starting the band and just not really thinking too much about, um, you know, how to turn this into something viable on a professional level you know it just it was just totally fun in the moment and that was that was really good enough i don't think we had a, there weren't a lot of bands like what we were doing i mean even the format of what we were doing with like drum machines and and it just didn't seem like i, I think i think we had a we had a healthy amount of imposter syndrome does that ever go away well you know it does it, over the course of the band when we started we were working with we were working with these homemade tapes that were like you know, bass and, and synth drums. And we would play along to those things. And it's like, we kind of put together a show that I think theatrically was kind of successful. And then the venue started getting bigger and we started actually rocking out a little bit more. Like it, we kind of moved from what I think people would con might perceive broadly as like a performance art thing and started really kind of presenting ourselves like we are a rock band, but Ringo and Paul have been replaced with by a tape recorder. And in the, in, for those years, in those years, like, like 80, when we started, we started touring in 88 and we would do like a show every night for months and months, you know, half of the year we were on the road and it was very much like rock and roll boot camp. And I had never been in like local bands or teen bands or anything like that. So like I was an adult kind of getting those, those skills while that was happening when I, you know, I mean, this is, this is a very personal and sort of anecdotal, but, and I have no idea what John's take on this would be, but like, while we were doing those shows, I, f I felt like I was in ACDC. I mean, I just, I, f I felt like I was in as real a rock band as any rock band had ever been. I was rocking as hard as anybody has ever rocked. And you can't stop this band's rockingness. And in the fullness of time, you know, like we got a full band, a rhythm section and, and, and expanded the band in 92 and have been working that way ever since. And like, I'm well aware of like how much that kind of presentation can kind of wash over a crowd. And I realized, I think I was just, I was completely uh, wrong. I was, I was in those years that I thought, you know, I think the people in the back row of our duo shows were like, wow, these guys are really just uh, mining a very narrow shaft. You maybe didn't have enough imposter syndrome. Yeah, I think, yeah. Well, well I don't know. How does imposter syndrome work? Exactly. I tend to think of it as like self-sabotage in that when second guessing causes you oh, right, to right, right. work against your best interests. Maybe, maybe I just didn't realize I was an imposter. If everything felt so right at the time in that configuration, if you had a rock that no one could stop, <laughs> you were the uh, the unstoppable force. What was the impulse to to move to a full band? Well, there were sort of uh, 
a couple things happening at the same time, sort of on different planes. We were playing much bigger and bigger spaces, and there was when we started every you know we could see the people in the back row like we could, and they could see everything that was happening on stage very very clearly. By the time 1992 rolled around, we were playing in like you know 2,000 3,000 capacity rooms where. Some people were very far away from us and definitely could not tell what was going on on stage. Working with tape seemed a little bit more uh, artificial and a little bit more like it seemed, given the size of the venues, it, it, I felt like it, it felt like we were like a track act more. It, it suddenly it's, it didn't seem as connected somehow. Things seemed the music seemed more disconnected. And the other thing that was happening was like uh, we were touring. We spent the entire year of 1990 on the road. Like like we did hundreds of shows that year, and uh, our ability to change the show up became much uh, trickier. When we were working in New York, like all through the 80s, we would come back to venues like a week later and have like new songs and different stuff. And like we were just always kind of woodshedding the show to keep it different. And we had lots of time to, in- to sort of invest in that effort. Once we were a touring outfit, it was really hard to, it was much harder to change things up uh, as actively as we would, as we like, and so you end up in that trap that a lot of bands that just do the same set every night d- are, end up in. And I think we realized that if we expanded to a live act, we could kind of solve a couple of problems at the same time, like a, a, expand to a live rhythm section that we could vary the sets v- very easily from night to night, which would be fun, and there wouldn't be any uh, misunderstanding that we were looking to uh, supplant Millie Vanilli on the charts was there a concern that you might be labeled as a novelty act oh the way you were performing i think we're st- i think we're still getting I, th- I think we're broadly categorized as a novelty act even now so i mean you know i think what john and i are doing is like this sort of balancing act of like blending our personal sensibilities and our sense of humor into this kind of songwriting that uh you know is designed to hold up to repeated listening and and that's a different task than like making like a comedy record or making a novelty record, which is really just about that immediate impact. Like however hard hitting that immediate impact is, that's as good as it's going to get. Um, I think hopefully, uh, you know, what we're doing, you know, kind of works on a different uh, level and you and you can listen to the song more than once and get more out of it as you go. But, you know, I mean, every bit, listen, you know, I've watched enough behind the musics to know that like every hair metal band feels like they're, they're categorized. You know, every, every band feels sorry for themselves in some way or another. You know, it's like nobody wants to be pigeonholed in, in a way like, uh, I guess, I guess the thing that's different now is like, it's what, what's weird to me is to think that we were trying to, we spent so much energy trying to break through on just like a regular chart world, you know, like we were just like, you know, they were trying to get our songs as like hit singles. I mean, maybe we should have done something else. I mean, maybe we should have had like a radio show or, you know, done some television or something. I, I don't know. I don't know. Maybe we just, this is the career we got and the time we, times we lived in. I was listening to the album and, you know, and, and reading up on a bit, I know that a certain percentage of the songs were written pre pandemic and i suspect a lot of the people as they're going through are going to attempt to kind of parse which ones were were written when and and what was actually impacted by the events of the past year and a half like thursday is one that immediately jumps out at me like is obviously i think being kind of a product of the pandemic and the sort of the day in day out sameness that that we've 
all been dealing with. Do you feel that you're able to sort of channel or deal with some of these contemporary and important topics in the way that you approach music? I f- wish I was better at it. Um, I Lost Thursday was definitely written, you know, in the midst of that sort of pandemic malaise. Um, you know, it's, 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 I think it's hard to talk about the pandemic and, you know, and, and creativity in a way. I feel um, sort of dis... Tell me about it. Just out of respect for all the people who've struggled so much harder to just deal with, like, the, the, the fundamental realities of living through a pandemic, uh, it's almost disrespectful to them to drill down on, on, on what it takes to stay in a creative headspace. It, it doesn't help, that's for sure. Yeah, I mean, this it's just it's just been really tough tough for everybody. I I wish I had I wish I wish I had never heard that uh, King Lear anecdote about Shakespeare. I mean, I love Shakespeare, and uh, I think you know the guy's got some serious chops. But um, talk about up and coming. <laughs> yeah, you got to check this guy out. So, but the thing that's so so at the beginning of the pandemic, there was a story going around, and I I don't I. I don't think it's apocryphal. I think it's actually true that he, you know he during the height of the bubonic plague he wrote King Lear and I think somehow this was being this idea was being spread around to to make creative types uh, feel stop feeling sorry for themselves and and kind of get off their you know get into the mix. There's a culture of hustle porn is the word that you get reading LinkedIn where it's just all about maximizing your output and all of this stuff that almost in some way runs counter to the creative process. Right. I mean, to me, the, the, the Shakespeare story was just like, oh, great. Another reason Shakespeare is better than everybody else. <laughs> yeah. You know, it doesn't, the it doesn't history's anything. greatest writer was able to write during a pandemic. Why can't you? Yes, exactly. Why aren't you more like Shakespeare? How profound of an impact did it have on, I guess your ability to just sort of, you know, get up and, 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 and do what you do, do the work that you do. My studio has never been cleaner. You know, I feel like it's, it's led to a lot of false starts. Um, and it's some, in some ways I feel like, um, uh, I haven't been able to finish as many things as I normally finish. And I think that's, that's because I haven't been able to concentrate as hard as I normally am able to concentrate. Um, but we did do, I think there's, there's probably a half dozen songs or so in, in the book project that were put together during the pandemic. I Lost Thursday clearly is one of them. Um, And it was just because there was this big gap of time between when we stopped working as the pandemic started and then resumed in December to finish. And just because there was this huge gap of time, I think both John and I felt like there was an opportunity to kind of up the the ante of like top quality work on the record. So we dispensed with a couple of songs that were half finished and added quickly added a bunch of new songs that seemed like better efforts. Um, but in a way, that's sort of typical of any project that we have extra time working on. I mean, it's not like a, there, there wasn't the urgency of uh, adding some like you know extra dystopian. Uh, tracks to have it follow the headlines i mean in fact there's a song on the record uh called if day for winnipeg that's probably you know it's 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 one of the the 
sort of gloomiest songs we've ever put together and uh and that was definitely pre-pandemic but i mean it, it's it's it could be the uh you know it could be the theme for the pandemic as far as i'm concerned what do you attribute that to well i mean you know we've always we've always had a lot of we've always had kind of a uh sidebar of death trip songs so in some ways it's no it's no different than uh other other tracks like that there's always been sort of a mortality or like a ticking a ticking clock to a lot of the a lot of the music you do. yeah and i think i think the truth is it's like talking about the balancing act of 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 uh the 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 songwriting setup when you're working with melody and you're working with like you know in a way if you're working with like simple song ideas there's something inherently cheerful about it and um it's interesting to try to offset that with something uh jarringly uh uh morbid or you know it's 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 a it is the sort of uh Reese's peanut butter cup of of they might be giants. You don't think though that there was, uh, I mean, because I think one one of the things that we maybe lost a little bit sight of, a track, sight of is that things weren't like great before the pandemic started. You know, certainly there was a lot going on in the world. You're saying the Trump administration wasn't great? Think of all he did. Listen, like the pandemic, like we said before, there were a few downsides. Yes. Do external, you know, even if you're not dealing with these ideas directly. Do these sorts of external forces tend to have a direct impact on the music you make? Oh, they they definitely do. I mean, they, you know, I think um, you know we we made an album in the midst of the Bush administration, which I think was you know very uh, um, affected by the the tone of that administration. This album, The Else, and it's like it is like uh, you know the uh, the the least cheery they might be giants record ever made and it, and it really I think it wasn't intentional at all but you know we do live in the world that's just a side effect of of being aware of things the relationship that like culture has to politics or culture has to like p- political history is a really interesting idea to me you know I think in a way what we're doing I, I guess I guess the truth is the the lateral move for they might be giants would be to become more political satirists but that has a very limited appeal to me personally and and but i think that's the that's sort of the established mode that people think of sassy musicians sassy songwriters can address things in the world if that doesn't work for us i'm not sure the best ways to express ourselves Politically, I mean, years, a few years back, we did a kids' record, uh, and it had a song on it called "Science Is Real," and which was riffing on the Leuven Brothers song "Satan Is Real." But it's just, you know, in in many ways, the I mean, the first verse of or the second verse of the song is essentially an explanation of like the scientific theory, like how the scientific theory works, and the first verse is kind of just sort of tease it up by saying like, like we like a lot of different things, but you know, we're kind of a fact-based bunch of people. And um, it did not seem like a very controversial song as it was being put together. Um, But in the fullness of time, you know, that the idea of, you know, our culture has, has, you know, it's not the 1950s anymore. And the culture has really moved past this notion that like whatever science says has got to be true. You know, we don't think, we don't go like, computers they're infallible or like you know vaccines they're proven safe you know obviously lots of people for better or worse and and 
in, in this case, obviously for worse, are are doubting those things. Um, so you, you kind of never know when you're going to sort of trip over something controversial. But, you know, we're definitely we're definitely adults in the real world. And, um, you know, thinking about this stuff. Um, I don't know. It's all, it, you know, the odd thing is, I mean, this is just a total sidebar. But, you know, when, when I'm posting something on social media, I'll post something on Twitter, and it'll be like, you know, right on, whatever, blah, blah. And you po- I'll post something on Facebook and realize how fully captured Facebook has become by the hard, the hard right. Like, you can't, you can't say, you know, you could, you could post, like, the most benign thing on Facebook. Like, I, I could post right now if I posted, like, we're all in this together. I would get like, there's, you know, probably the second response would be, I hate it when bands get political, unfollow. So, you know, in a way, I've, to some extent, like, I think that, you know, we're not going after the times so much as like the times are kind of coming after us. I mean, in a sense, though, knowing that, that you're going to get that pushback regardless, is that a mo- motivator potentially to lean into it more? Uh, you know, there there are moments that it seems like, you know, trolling those people would be the most delightful thing in the world. And I think everybody, everybody in, in everybody on social media experiences the same thing. I mean, I just as an individual, like it's suddenly like we're all kind of running for like state representative. Like you're you're actually you have to kind of check yourself before you say something really stupid just because you're you're feeling bitchy that day what was the backlash to that science song like and and did that i don't know did did you regroup after that and did you sort of re-examine what you were putting out into the world i mean again obviously that there's a difference between the stuff you're making for kids and the stuff you're making for adults i'm proud of the song and and i'm i'm glad the song is in the world and i think it actually is sort of getting at something kind of specific that it is okay is okay to say there are things about the song that are kind of a little bit reckless i mean even even the statement science is real in and of itself is sort of uh, undermines a notion of science that's that's but but you know the way science is explained and the way science is understood to the popular culture is this interesting um i don't know it's 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 it's, it's troubling how it reminds it reminds me of things like the lost cause like they're all there's so ma- there's so many facile ways that the power of science can be undermined uh by these kind of zingers that people come at it with and and a lot of times people are are very persuaded by those quick and easy uh ideas you know the truth is like the scientific method is great science science is incredibly powerful and science is saving us from something far worse than we could ever imagine right now. So I, 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 I tip my hat to science and, uh, and I'm, I, I just, I just, and I really, I really feel like there are people undermining the, the gravity of those ideas in the culture that just need to be shut up very, very politely shut (laughs) up. I might add. I guess partially from the standpoint of fear of, of alienating people, you know, again, obviously that's something as you oh, alluded sure. to earlier yeah. that you weren't, the stakes are perhaps lower when you do feel like you're making music for yourself, but like anything else, when you do become more popular and 
when it does become her career, the, the stakes are suddenly larger and, and suddenly right in front of you. Is part of not being overtly political is a fear of uh, alienating a swath of your audience? Well, I mean, when things, when public things like, you know, a blowback to a song like Science is Real happen, it, you, you know, they're also, at the same time, there are people kind of boosting us along saying like, you know, I'm so glad you said this. And so, so there, there is like a, it's mollified in certain ways, but it does feel bad. Like you, it, it's so hard to find an audience for what you're doing. I mean, we, you know, we are, you know, we are the, the, the tortoise in the cultural uh, music race. And I just feel like we've invested so much time and effort into persuading people to be interested in what we're doing that when we do something like that, you know, I mean, I, I feel personal, uh, like, 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 I don't want to, I don't, I'm not trying, certainly not trying to alienate people, but, uh, but you know, there's, there's only, there's only so much you can do. And yeah, I mean, yeah, I mean, it's kind, it's kind of weird. Like, um, I think about when we're doing shows, I think about like the structure of shows and how, you know, there's nothing, there's nothing phonier than like a second encore. And there's nothing great. There's nothing greater than a second encore. Phonier in the sense of that sort of artifice that you're constructing. Yeah. I mean, yeah, because I mean, I mean, I've done shows in my life where we've gotten, you know, unsolicited. Well, what, I mean, every, I guess every encore solicited. What do you call it? Like, unpl- we have done impromptu. Yes. Impromptu. We've done impromptu encores. Second and third and fourth encores in our lives. I mean, if you play, you know, provincial towns in Germany, you will get like a a third encore that is a powerful, emotional. Like these guys might not ever be coming back. Yeah, they might not be coming back, and it's like it's it sort of feels like you're playing for some kind of like cultural prisoners. Like you know, they are they they have not been able to see a lot of things, and they are very grateful that you made the effort. And, um, and that feels really great. I mean, it's, 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 uh, you just have to have like, you know, uh, uh, ice water going through your veins to not feel something in those situations. But as like, you know, as a person who puts a set list together, I do know that there's something kind of theatrical or, I mean, I don't think it's pandering and I don't think it's like manipulative. I think we're just trying to deliver a show that's going to feel like complete and, Having a plan for a second encore is not a is not a mistake, but it is a weird thing to. It's something I've never gotten used to mapping out. Put it that way. Do you feel that that you know because I guess because of the the fan base that you've cultivated and and people you know really have stuck with you and and all the people that I know that are into they might be giants are like are very into they might be giants. Do you think there's an expectation there of a certain amount of kind of like of intimacy that maybe they would get with larger bands when it comes to just sort of like social media or interacting? Yeah, I think, well, I think that um, the whole culture has moved in that direction. I mean, I've, I've participated in the Jonathan Colton cruise a few times. So you're like literally like trapped in an area. (laughs) Yeah, you're you're on a boat with with people. Although they've they've uh I have to say Jonathan Colton's people have put together a scenario and set up kind of set up a bunch of protocols for how people behave that is uh makes it pretty easy. I mean, it's not um like uh it doesn't feel like Beatlemania. Um and I think it easily could. But though that you know, I'm significantly older than most of the most of the performers on that cruise, and 
one thing I've noticed is that, and maybe it is simply because I'm older or whatever the history of the band is, but um, people in the modern world, it's like there is kind of a, a what is that Nashville event like fan? There's a there's a fan day that they have where people just uh, you know line up and get autographs from fan fest. Fan fest, and it's and it's it 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 feels like for if if you are a post social media entertainer, the expectation of you sharing everything about yourself and sharing it. I mean, part you know it's just everything else. It's like it's the Instagram world like people people know the names of people's pets you know i don't i don't particularly you know i don't want people to know the name of my pet i've got some privacy issues you're not putting your entire self out there no no and i mean i'm i'm happy you know i'm happy to share like whatever but i will i will break some news on this podcast i have created a a fake name for my cat that i take photographs of on my personal instagram account his name is not really mc fresh step he has a different name. That's disappointing. <laughs> it's a good name. It is a good name. You know, I, I was reading in, in in the lead up to the release of this record that the both of you were working on solo releases as well in a sort of almost a kiss like approach. Of <laughs> <laughs> that's a great. That's great. That specifically is something that you haven't done in, in a while and and don't do too often. I mean, is is that an opportunity to maybe? A show part of yourself. I really think, I really think that the artwork for for my side project thing should be like in the full Gene Simmons <laughs> nightmare make, kiss solo album makeup would be uh, that would be hilarious. Years ago, I did a side project band called Monopuff, and I think John, you know, to some degree, John Linnell felt obliged to kind of answer it with the state songs project that he did. I mean, I don't, I wasn't party to the conversations that he had with our, our manager, but I, I can sort of imagine our manager saying like, Hey, you know, Flansburg's doing a, a side project album. Can't you get, get it together to do one too? And then this time around, John was wanted to do this Roman songs project. And we were thinking of it, it just, it just doing like a doing some kind of ep set of things came up but it's not like it's not like a big commitment to uh uh stretching out it's sort of a it's kind of baby steps i still don't even know what i'm gonna do actually i'm sort of toying with the idea of doing like a demo sounding thing and it's just an idea now john's roman songs is out yeah. and in the world and and spinning on spotify and it's a really interesting project in a lot of different all the songs are in latin which is uh really odd but uh yeah, I'm still, I'm still, you know, we're ostensibly, we're starting the next They Might Be Giants album. And so I'm trying to figure out what's going to be, what's going to go where. It sounded like part of that there, there was a bit of sort of regrouping before this album. Now, obviously, again, because of the pandemic and everything else, it it got delayed. But it might, it might have been something you wrote on, on Tumblr or in an interview, but a quote from you where you described the output of 2018 as being manic in the sense of like you know putting out several albums and then having this this long break between is is that generally what the band's output is like that you just have these sort of creative highs and and lows we we definitely have creative highs and lows but unfortunately we have no uh 
ability to control when they happen. And they coincide with one another? I mean, are you, you two are sort of that symbiotic? Oh, oh, the two of us. A lot of times, because I think a lot of times the, the reason for the lows is more physical exhaustion than actual creative depletion. Um, uh, years back, uh, we did... Before we did the album Join Us, we did um, we did two children's projects, which were like DVD things for Disney, and both of them were like an hour long and fully animated, and there were lots of moving parts to those things. And we also did, we recorded The Else, which was the, uh, the mirth-free Bush-era album I was referring to before. And, and um, at the end of that, we were basically supposed to slide directly into making another studio album to tour on and i remember going into we went into a, a recording session and usually like you know john and i will confabulate some stuff together kind of long distance like postal service style and then we'll both come in with like our own demos and we'll work them up in the studio often to you know just be finished projects and the whole band's there like you know all the guys in the band are there and and it's it's like these are big like production days like everything's you know with the drum kits set up and everything's mic'd up and everything's good to go and I, and I think both John and I kind of showed up with nothing and it was just like oh wow like we actually we've been working too hard like and we did a couple of things and the and some of those things have seen the light of day but a lot of the things from those sessions were just like this isn't really finished yet and that was we had never i mean when we started we would go into the when we when we started the band we were always so over prepared and the legacy of being over prepared is, is is pretty strong so to find to finally get to that kind of pitiful you know third act of behind the music you know stage of you know having everything good to go and no ideas uh just se- just seemed like uh it was time to kind of break it off and so we actually we actually stopped recording and uh, didn't do anything for a couple of months. And then when we came back, everything was sort of back to normal. And that was that was the break we needed. But yeah, you can, we definitely have like run out of gas, you know, or at least heard the muffler dragon. A couple of months, though, in the grand scheme of the 40 years that the band has been together is not a lot of time. Uh, yeah, I guess I guess not. I mean, for us, yeah. I mean, but we're not, you know, I mean, we're pretty clean living people. Is it that sort of, um, though, that ability to kind of like go away and each work on your own thing and come back together is, do you attribute the the band's longevity to that, this way you figured out of, of working? I don't have an explanation for why <laughs> we kept on going. I mean, we've had, there have been times when we've been like, you know, seriously broke and, um, and those times have felt like it would be a perfectly good idea to stop right around, right as we were ending our our time with Electra, we were touring a lot, but we actually were losing money on tour because our expenses were too high. And uh, I mean, that just felt like a, a pit, you know, that we were never going to get out of. It was like, it was like, I felt like we were like kind of digging our own grave. But um, I don't know, you know, being in a band is a total roller coaster. I'm sure you've, you, I mean, you've talked, I, I know from listening to your podcast, you've talked to people who've had much higher highs and much lower lows. In some ways, I think, you know, we've been lucky. One thing one thing that's been our good fortune is that um and this is this is a, a a weird thing to to try to phrase but like sometimes i think tremendous success is the the most destructive thing for bands like w- w- when you see bands really go through the hype machine that seems like when 
everything gets turned around. I talked to, I, I didn't, I, in, I interviewed a psychiatrist who helps bands bands get back together. He's not the some kind of monster guy. He's not the, he's the other guy. Like there's, there's a couple of them. But one thing that uh, he said that, that uh, made a lot of sense to me, he said, like, when you're getting, trying to get bands back together, you just remind them of the reasons. If you remind them of the reasons you, they started their collaboration, a lot of times it's this, like, in, there's this incredibly powerful pull to, towards the, towards the people that they collaborate with. Like, they really understand the, the magic that they started with. And I think one of the things that's kind of nice about They Might Be Giants, at least, I mean, speaking for myself, is like, it's very clear to me what's good about what we're doing. Like, it's very clear to me what's, uh, you know, extra powerful about this project. And a lot of that, it's not just the legacy, it's not just that we've been around for a long time, it's that the the what we started is a really, is is a worthwhile thing. And, um, and it's worth continuing. So, you know, for me, all these years later, it still seems kind of like one unbroken, slightly manic episode. I often ask members of bands who have been around, you know, multiple decades, whether there is a sort of a tacit understanding after every album that there's going to be another one. But I feel like I don't even have to ask you that question because you're, it sounds like the minute something is sort of in the can, you're already off and running on the next thing. Yeah. And in a sense, I think it's because we think of this as a project, like the band is the project. Not, it's not um, some localized thing we're doing. So yeah, I, I mean, and I, and I'm grateful that, it, that, you know, it seems like what we're doing has uh, has that kind of uh, strength to it because you know the world really knocks people around a lot. I mean, friends of mine who have been in bands, you know, it's it seems like usually it's like just much more emotional and much more of a of a tr- you know just and and there's this other thing that I'm very really grateful that has never happened to us is there's this whole weird thing that happens to bands that and this again this is the the single edged sword of success is that after success it seems like people in bands often get the message that it's time to go away which is must be must be a really horrible uh, feeling. I mean, not that, like, I'm, I'm sure there are many people in the world who wish they might be trans would go away. The thing that I've noticed, and not everyone is willing to admit this, but the thing, the thing that some people have been very honest with me about is I think that what really traps people is having that huge success really early on. Right, right. Yeah. I mean, we were adults when we started the band, and that helped. You know, I think if we had started, if we had started the band even four or five years earlier, you know, in our late teens rather than our mid twenties, it would have been much more like the drama of like brother bands where like you have like this kind of infighting and stuff like that. And we, we really don't have that stuff going on. So we're lucky that way. But yeah, there's a, there's a lot of, uh, there's not a lot of drama and they might be giants land. I can tell you that much. <laughs> 